Hi, everyone, and welcome to Murder and Merlot. We are a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Michelle. How's it going, Michelle? It's been strange. Little weird, yep. Yeah, yeah, I miss your face. Yeah. <laughs> I miss Kind of nice face. to actually yeah. see you right now. Yeah, so if you can't tell, we are not in the same room. <laughs> we are recording over the computer, and we're, we're set up on FaceTime as well, so we can see each other's beautiful faces. <laughs> beautiful is not the word that I would use to describe yeah. it. But thanks. Yeah, well, we got some great hair going on, some great outfits. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's good. And yeah, thanks to Des, my hubby, for setting us up so we could do yeah. this. Yeah, exactly. And thanks, Des. Well, you know, follow social distancing and all of that. Yeah, all Great. that good stuff. Like many yeah. others, we've been self-isolating. Yes. I've been in it for two weeks now. It's been great, yep, actually. and I'm <laughs> almost there, too, because my kid got sick, so. Yeah, so here we are. We're making it work. Yep. It's all good. Yep, so bear with us if we have any glitches or anything. We're... Or uh, you might hear screaming children. Or you might hear a screaming husband because my husband is watching Talladega Nights right now, even though I told oh. him he had to be quiet, and he's not quiet. He's quiet during Talladega Nights. It's not oh, possible. No, he keeps screaming like, Merka, and stuff like that. So, <laughs> uh, Yeah, I've, screaming children, screaming husbands. It's, it's cool. It's interesting. So yeah. I apologize in advance for that. I can't control that man. <laughs> <laughs> And I can't um, obviously control my kids. So no, we're good. We're good. Everybody's good. They, yeah. they should be going to bed soon, though. So yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds good. Um, well, I guess before we jump into the episode, we can talk a little bit about um, our previous episodes and responses that we've gotten. Everybody's been really yeah. so far. Yeah. My uh, favorite shout-out was from uh, Jody. She said that she was impressed that we were tackling Green River on our first Oh, yeah. Episode. So I was yep. like, yeah, that's, it's a doozy. It's a doozy. Yep. I love how it's a doozy is for some reason our thing. <laughs> it's a, yeah, apparently it is. Apparently I feel I like we don't, we don't usually say it a lot, but we seem to say it almost every episode. <laughs> it's now a thing. It's now One a thing. thing. It's One a doozy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, there will be t-shirts. <laughs> uh, but yeah, everybody's. Everybody's been great on social media answering our questions. Um, we've gotten lots of responses about our unsolved cases that people wanted to know more about. And also the I survived question. People answered that as well. So thanks, everybody. Yeah, we love it. We love your responses. So yeah. keep it up. Keep it up, friends. Well, I can't wait any longer to talk about part two of the Green River Killer. So let's jump into it. Okay, friends, grab your glass and get cozy. Let's book club it up. Dink, dink. <laughs> <laughs> what are you drinking, Michelle? Uh, red wine. What are you drinking? I'm not drinking wine. I ran out of wine because self-isolation. I'm drinking of White Claw. So. I've heard good things about White Claws. Yeah, I went to Montana and then it happened. <laughs> now I've, <laughs> I've been drinking them every day. <laughs> it's Apparently funny. it's a thing for um, people to start making candles out of their White Claw cans. Hmm. So, you're a crafty person. So I am a crafty it. person and I have lots of empty cans now. So, <laughs> And I'm also a hoarder. So, you know, <laughs> I will keep those. Project. <laughs> Projects. 
All right, friends. Let's do a quick recap from part one. We went over lots of information about victims going missing, bodies being found, what investigators were dealing with, some suspects, and a bit about the killer's childhood, teen years, and adult relationships. What we did not talk about, however, was who the killer was, his last marriage, how he was caught, and what information surfaced once he was incarcerated. And that is what we will be discussing today. Anything you wanted to add about uh, part one before we move on? Uh, I don't think so. I think you pretty much covered everything. Cool. Just wanted to I'm, make sure. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited to reveal who he is. Oh, yeah. I was yeah. screaming when <laughs> I was writing this, and I finally got to type out his name. So, I'm look. excited. Me too. All right. So using the book still, uh, The Green River Running Red, as our guideline, we are now starting in part two, which is about page 299. At least that's what it is in my book. Michelle and I found out that our books are slightly different, so that was confusing, but should be somewhere in that general area. Yeah, it's right around there. <laughs> Relationship-wise, we know the man had multiple marriages and serious girlfriends. Uh, last mentioned was Darla Bryce, who left him in December of 1981. He wasn't lonely for long, as it seemed as though he had a constant source of women from the PWP group, Parents Without Partners. All the while he was dating several women at a time, he was also soliciting sex workers. He demanded intercourse so often that each woman he was with believed he had to be faithful. Damn, that dude was busy. <laughs> and gross. And disgusting. <laughs> but, like, how? How? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Meh. <laughs> he was emotionally unavailable and unable to show affection. He did seem to change, however, when he met Judith in early 1985. She, too, had been a member of the PWP group as her first marriage ended in divorce after accepting that her husband of 19 years was bisexual. The relationship with Judith right away seemed different from the rest. They started going out for dinner dates, and she didn't go home with him for months after they started seeing each other, which was very strange for him. <laughs> he treated me so gentle and perfect, she would later recall. They fit so well together. They had similar interests, like garage sales and camping, she didn't shy away from his son, and he didn't shy away from her cats. She even got along with his family, which is surprising, to say the least. They were best friends, and they did everything together, or so she thought. Poor, poor Judith. Oh, poor sweet Judith. She has no idea what's, what's going to go down. Oh, she's such a sweet, sweet lady. She was not aware that the same man had been stopped two to three times and questioned by police, as it appeared he was trying to solicit favors from sex workers. Each time he was released, as he always was agreeable and candid with detectives. He was picked up again in February 1985 by the Green River Task Force, which was actually the same month that he met Judith. He was picked up because a previous survivor victim, Penny Bristow, had found the courage to come forward and file a complaint three years after she was attacked by the GRK. So now let's back, back, back it up, as this attack was actually mentioned in part one of the book, and I originally did not mention it because I thought our first episode was going to be 13 million hours long, so I was trimming <laughs> some parts, and I forgot that this story would later come up. So we're going to talk about it now. <laughs> so back in 1982, Penny Bristow was picked up near the SeaTac airport by a man in a pickup truck. She wasn't a sex worker, but he offered her $20 for oral sex, and she needed the money. She asked, just like many of the other victims, if he was the Green River Killer. Of course, he said no. They went into the woods to engage in the act, but he became angry because it seemed he was impotent. 
Call back. He knocked her into the dirt and began choking her from behind. She was able to escape as he tried to adjust his grip. She ran off. He tried to follow, but he fell because his pants were still down. Right. <laughs> 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 <There. laughs> uh, it's, it? it's actually pretty great. Yep. Yeah. Luckily, she made it to a nearby mobile home, and the family inside let her in. She didn't come forward to detectives right away, as we already know, but when she did, she gave a description of a white man in his 30s with brown hair and a mustache. And yeah, so I thought it was really interesting that uh, detectives were actually able to connect that to the green, actual Green River Killer without saying his name, but they did actually, you know, question him about it. So, Yeah, yeah. really interesting. Yeah. It's so. unfortunate that they weren't able to arrest him for it at that point in time. But yeah, exactly. It was. It, but. I think it put him on the suspect list for sure. Yeah, yeah. I'll get more into that here. I just thought it was really neat. It was just like, seemed like a very vague description, but he got picked up for it. So. Yeah. So when the man was being questioned, back now again in 1985, he admitted to detectives that he had tried to choke her, but that was only a reflex as she bit him during oral sex. He said most men would have acted the same, but he quickly came to his senses. Bullshit. Whatever. <laughs> uh-huh. Unfortunately, Penny did not want to charge him formally, so without a complaining witness, they had to let him go. This did, however, put him on level A of the suspect list. Frank Adamson said he was one of the primary suspects, and they had been surveilling him. They were all aware of his involvement with sex workers, but they did not think he was actually killing them. During the questioning in 1985, they even used a polygraph, but he had always been pretty sure that he could beat it, and that he did. His pulse stayed even, he did not sweat, and his blood pressure remained the same. And I was going to add information about how lie detectors work, but considering I have so much to go over today, I will save that for a future episode, maybe a mini-sode or something like that. I did do research on it. It is interesting. Oh, yeah. Um, Well... Around May or June in 1985, Judith moved in with him and they lived together in a small house. She would take his paychecks and budget their money. She always made sure he had enough cash to get breakfast and lunch and to fill his gas tank. When they weren't camping, they were garage sailing. They called themselves pack rats and enjoyed collecting stuff together. Before the two lived together, a neighbor who had actually sold him the home, remember he asked some men in the neighborhood for some help ripping up carpet out of one of his bedrooms. He claimed to have knocked over a can of red paint and needed to get the carpet out and replace it. Guys, it's never red paint. Or red wine or whatever. Come on, that's the stupidest excuse. <laughs> never ever. No, don't listen. Anyways, after a few years of being together, the man and Judith were married on June 12th, 1988. After a long period of what seemed to be no activity from the GRK, in June 1985, a skeleton was discovered by a dozer operator in Oregon. Washington deputies on scene discovered a skull with an obvious defect, likely either a bullet or uh, from a previous surgery. There was also two pelvises and some rib bones. Forensic anthropologists estimated that the bones had been there for at least a year. Only one day after the discovery, the remains were identified as Denise Darcel Bush. Using only her upper teeth, as the searchers were unable to find the mandible, which is such a strange detail, because five years later... Her lower jaw was discovered, but it was in Seattle. What in the actual fuck? (laughs) Right? That's almost 200 miles apart. So how 
why I have so many questions. Was he trying to play games with detectives? Like, I guess so. Probably. <laughs> it's I would, so weird. He would have had to take in it there. Yeah, it's not just going to migrate on its own. <laughs> it's not like you can explain that distance by, like, coyotes or whatever. Right, yeah. I think he had to have done it. And then what I also want to know, because I'm a weird creep, is was the mandible removed shortly after her death? Or was it moved years later, like when everything was decomposed and she was just a skeleton? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but he did I like to... I don't know either. It's, it's <laughs> all really bad. I'm sorry. Sorry, that's where my brain goes. Perhaps upon revisiting the body sites, as we all know that he liked to do, um, he might have, might have decided to take it and move it. Don't know why, but... Because <laughs> he's a creepy creep. Because he is a major creepy creep. More remains were found in the following week. This time, they found a complete skull, one rib, a partial pelvis, an arm, a tooth, and a partial vertebrae. Also, I don't know why. It says a complete skull and one tooth. <laughs> that doesn't really make any sense to me. I don't know. <laughs> that's what the book says. So that's, that's what I said. Strange. Yeah, because a complete skull would be... All of the teeth as well. All your teeth. So, but, okay. I don't know. Yep. Anyways, these were the remains of Shirley Marie Shirell, which is also very surprising as she had gone missing years prior from Seattle. Again, these skeletons were found in Oregon. So, right. maybe he, I don't know, did that at the same time, I guess. Moved yeah. bodies at the same time. I don't know. Strange. Yeah, weird. Weird. All weird. Or took them for a drive. Or, who knows? Who knows? Two days later, two more victims were discovered. However, these remains would not be identified. Official GRK victim toll has now grown to 26. Only 18 were able to be identified at that time. Man, I think forensic dentistry is fascinating. And I just can't comprehend exactly how it works. I understand the <laughs> principles and stuff, but isn't it so crazy? Like, it's I don't know. insane how you can just like, oh yeah, that's so-and-so's teeth. Right? Like, right? I understand, like, using dental records and photographs and all that kind of stuff, but actually to use it in the field with, like, a random skull that you find and having to compare it to, like, missing people and stuff like that. Like, how do you ever find a match? I just, it's crazy. Crazy. Who decides that they want to do that as their job? I want to look at dead people's teeth and figure <laughs> out who they are. Honestly, I think I'd rather look at dead people's teeth rather than live people's teeth because, like, I don't I really mean, like teeth. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My dad wanted me to be a dental hygienist, and I was like, nah, yeah. I don't like to touch no. people, so why would I want to be in their mouths? <laughs> we work people? with animals because yes. humans are gross. Humans yeah. are gross. <laughs> Even when dog smells are gross or cats or whatever, it's not their That's fault. Different. It's totally different. No. Totally different. No. Anyways, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> Little sidebar. Little sidebar. <laughs> <laughs> After the summer of 1985, it was pretty quiet until September rolled around. Fortunately, though, this is a survivor story. Yay! Yay. Best. So the rundown is two young women got out of a drug rehab center in Seattle and decided to head south. They were only 15 and 16 years old. Shortly after arriving in Portland, local officers picked them up and requested a Watson Warrens check. Uh, the one woman was kept in the jail while the other, Moira Bell, was released. She was tired and broke. She needed to make some motel money, so she went out working. 
The next day, she went out again. A driver in a blue taxi station wagon pulled up and asked, do you want a date? They agreed on $20 for oral sex. Also, I thought it was very strange that she said it was a taxi. But nothing else. Yeah, nothing. Nobody else mentioned or brought back that detail. I know way later on in the book, they did say that he had a blue station wagon. So that matches the description. But she did say that it was a taxi. Like it had the thing on top and and the sign on the door. So I thought that was very, very strange. But anyways, they didn't mention anything else about that. They drove south and parked under a bridge. Suddenly, the man grabbed her hair and pulled out a knife. He used masking tape to bind her wrist behind her back and her arms to her body. He then headed onto the freeway while she was helplessly kneeling on the floorboards. She had put the $20 he gave her in her boot, but he retrieved it back once they were stopped at their destination. That was always very important to him, is to always take back the couple bucks that he would give them. Yeah, it's very particular. He then pulled her out of the vehicle, ripped her clothes off, and violently raped her. This poor woman. He punched her multiple times in the face and then was furious when she could no longer stand. And also she got blood on him. So he was mad. Like, what did you think was going to happen? Asshole. Murdering people is just always tidy. It's just hate when murdering is inconvenient. (laughs) You have to do laundry. Right. (gasps) They don't stand like a punching bag. God. He went to his vehicle to wipe off the blood, and he sat there for a while. Upon returning, he was wearing a new set of clothes. He ripped off the rest of her tape and the rest of her clothes off, and he attempted to strangle her with her pantyhose, but they broke. He tried to use a bandana, but it broke too. She played dead after the multiple attempts to strangle her. He went back to his car and waited a while, and then he returned to check her pulse. I can't even imagine how terrified she must have been. And then he said, sorry, but I'm going to have to kill you. You might tell. She continued uh, to, I know, <laughs> right? And she continued to play dead as he drug her body over rocks and weeds and then threw her over an embankment. This badass, tough as nails woman continued to play dead as she fell 35 feet. She got stuck on a tree or something, and this prick scaled down the embankment, checked her pulse again, and then pushed her further down the embankment again. Because he's awful. The worst. But it doesn't end there. After the man finishes a cigarette, he climbs down to her. And what she said happened was, quote, he stabbed me in the chest, straight in. I took both my hands and pulled the knife out. And then I went completely limp. This time when he checked for a pulse, I held my breath. And I guess he didn't feel anything. End quote. (laughs) I got the chills. I want to know, like, where he stabbed her that Mm -hmm. she to like pull it out pull it out i have no idea i don't know how she did any of that yeah well, yeah because <laughs> <laughs> it's not over so nope. he went back up had another smoke came back down felt for a pulse and again he did not feel anything thank the lord he then covered her body and by that i mean he threw a couple handfuls of grass on her she wasn't sure if he was gone But once it was fully daylight, Moira was able to pull herself back up onto the road and was able to get help. Isn't that... Seriously. Like, stabbed in the chest. Yeah. Punched in the face. Like, like just... Thrown down an embankment and she still was able to make it back to the road. Right? Yeah. Yeah. She was a tough, tough lady. 
So Moyer worked with the FBI to create a sketch that did happen to look like one of the other Green River composite drawings, but there were multiple sketches and they were all vastly different. So it was difficult to determine if any were actually accurate. Four days after Moira's attack, another body was, was discovered in a Seattle park by a school teacher who was taking her class on a field trip. Can you imagine? No. <laughs> I'm not sure if any of the kids knew what happened that day, but if they did, I'm sure most of them were probably pretty upset, but there was at least one kid that was like, best field trip ever. <laughs> yes. <I> guarantee it. <laughs> and that kid grew up to be a murderino. <laughs> Absolutely. So search crews ended up finding the entire skeleton, and it was identified as Mary Exeta West, who was a pregnant teen we mentioned in part one. She had been missing for 18 months. Sucks to end a survivor story on such a depressing note, uh, but there is one more survivor story in part two that we'll discuss in a little bit here. Two months after these events, the Green River Task Force received a million-dollar federal grant. Everyone had extremely high hopes that they would soon catch the killer. But when this didn't happen, taxpayers and politicians were not thrilled. Bodies continued to be discovered in 1985 and 1986, and the task force kept on trucking. They had hoped with the advancing DNA testing that was becoming available, and by revisiting the FBI profile, they would soon be able to put the killer behind bars. Unfortunately, again, this was not the case. Adamson took another look at his main three suspects at this point to see who fit the profile the best. These suspects were all mentioned in part one of the book, but I didn't talk about them because if you want all the details, you can read the book yourself. Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) I will give a brief description of each of them, though, here. Uh, Let's go through the top three suspects. Number one was Igmar Patmusin. I didn't actually think about pronouncing that before right now. (laughs) (laughs) I was probably so wrong. Nobody look at his name. Don't judge me. (laughs) He was an old man with a barn uh, that was allegedly filled with photos of women. Detectives believed that he was just a lonely elderly man. He was also, quote, too conservative and concerned about his wealth and success. So they didn't think uh, he would risk any of that. Right. Suspect number two was the meek man detectives had encountered several times as he interacted with sex workers. This was the same man who was brought in for questioning about the choking incident and had passed the lie detector test. Detectives were tentative because this suspect had a full-time job and believed he would not have the time to do the stalking, picking up, killing, transporting, and staging of the bodies like he did. They also believed his relationship with his mother did not seem concerning. She showed him enough attention, proved she cared, and did not abandon him. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) We gave each other a look. (laughs) Suspect number three was a fur trapper and the profiler's favorite pick based on his upbringing with his mother, his outdoor hunting and fishing lifestyle, and his taxidermy displays. But hold up for a second. (laughs) As you will see, this guy does give hunters a bad rep but I want to say that people who enjoy hunting, fishing, and taxidermy are not bad people. (laughs) I was just going to say, Tara, is it you? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I don't it's just such a common thing that people, I don't know, have so much judgment for those that enjoy those activities, especially in true crime. They're always like, oh, he was definitely a weirdo because this is what he did. But I am one of those people and I have so much respect for animals and I dedicate my whole life to animal care. So, Just saying, we are not all the same. 
this dude is just a bad dude. He's just a bad dude. Yep. <laughs> yep. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> All right. This person, however, like I said, was a bad person. His name was Barney Tickenburg, middle-aged, very familiar with the Green River area, and very athletic. He was a creepy dude and seemed to enjoy killing animals a little bit too much. Also, he had a library full of books about human anatomy and various methods of killing people. But, I mean, my library doesn't seem that far off of that either. <laughs> I, I can look right now. I have a human anatomy book down there, and it's a coloring book. <laughs> All the other books are about murder. So, yeah. I love it. That's hilarious. <laughs> uh, but he also cruised around in his truck with police lights, handcuffs, and a badge, which is usually not great. Not a good sign. Nope. He also nope. had a mannequin riding around in his truck that he apparently found in the woods. And I just want to say, any mannequin found in the woods is 100% haunted. <laughs> yeah, don't pick that up. Don't pick that up and then keep it in your truck as a passenger? What? Gross. No. <laughs> That's... You just invited a demon into your truck. It's cool. <laughs> now you have a demon truck. That's what happens. Uh, isn't there a movie about that or something? I don't know. Anyways. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, detectives interviewed people who knew him, and there were many reports of animal cruelty, sadism, and a fascination with death. Cool. An interesting point made by an FBI agent was that it wasn't unusual for hunters and trappers to submerge their game in cold water to preserve it. Also adding that sometimes they would use logs or heavy rocks placed on top of the body so they wouldn't float away or get carried uh, downstream. Which makes so much sense, and I'm mad I didn't think about this when we were discussing their early victims, uh, Marcia Chapman, Cynthia Hines. But anyways, I thought it was super interesting. Yeah. February 6, 1986, FBI special agents searched Tickenberg's house, his mother's house, two pickup trucks, and another truck found cut into two pieces and burned at his mother's house. Kind of strange. <laughs> Barney and his wife had been taken to FBI headquarters and were questioned for several hours. The couple was not happy about this. Tickenberg volunteered to take a lie detector test, and he passed. They didn't have a choice but to release him. Sounds very similar. Yeah. Three months later, he was eliminated as a suspect. This got bad publicity, and it was Frank Adamson's downfall. He left the investigation in January of 1987. Captain Jim Pompey was now the head of the Green River Task Force, and with huge budget cuts, the task force started shrinking. Taking a break from the investigation, we have one more quick survival story, and that is of Hope Redding. I love Hope that her name is Hope. I know. It's sweet. And I think like most of the names are changed. So I think it's really sweet that if they changed it, that they changed it to Hope. thought oh, that was really sweet. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Hope was not like the other victims. She had a professional career, married, and she was extremely cautious. How did she get picked up then? Her car broke down on the way home from work, which I have such a fear of that happening because I live in the middle of nowhere and that would be awful. And the most reliable car ever. Yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> and reminder, this is the 80s. There were no cell phones. So much worse than if it were to happen today. <laughs> yes. A man in a pickup truck pulled over to help her. She would only crack the window to talk to him. He told her that he was pretty good with cars and she popped the hood. About 20 minutes later, he shut the hood and came back to the window. He said he knew what the problem was, but he would need parts. 
He offered to give her a ride to somewhere where she could make a phone call and get picked up. She felt guilty as he had took so much time out of his day to help her, so she agreed. And I know it's easy to say in this situation that you wouldn't, you would never do this, and it was a bad idea. But honestly, I probably would have done the same thing. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> like she didn't really have yeah. any other options, right? But like walking. Yeah. So not that I'm encouraging it or anything like that, but honestly. And especially when there's a killer on the loose, right? True. Yeah. Okay. True, true, true. I, are you going to walk or are you going to take the ride from the nice guy who just tried to fix your car? Exactly. So, yeah, you can fuck politeness and all that kind of stuff. But some situations are, are really difficult. And she yeah. was very unlucky that it so yeah. happened to be that dude. Yeah. So as they were driving, he started acting strange and nervous. He drove right past the 7-Eleven where he was supposed to drop her off. She started swearing and fighting as they were now headed down a dead-end road. They rolled out of the car and continued fighting on the ground. She was not going to let him win. He tried to put his arm around her neck, and she sank her teeth in as deep as she could, and he let go. Yes, girl! I love that. Yeah! Get it. (laughs) Get it. She ran off into the darkness and hid. He couldn't find her, so he eventually had no choice but to drive away. Years later, she recognized a picture of the man and called the Green River Task Force. So that's good. How, did, how do you think he explained the bite marks in his arm to his wife? Ugh. Sorry, that was a random thought. I don't know. What year was that? Did I say what year that was? Damn. Uh, I did not. Oh, well. Maybe he wasn't but, married at that time. But I think he was, though. Hold up. I feel like he was. Because yeah. we just talked, well, this it's hard because the story jumps around so much. The last mm-hmm. note that I have was the the detective leaving the investigation in January 1987. So he might have been married at that time, but with the story jumping around so much, it's, it's hard to say it's at the moment. <laughs> yeah, but he always had a girlfriend or something, and I, yeah, don't know how he got away with that, but he was a very good liar, and pretty much anything he told Judith, she would believe, so I'm sure he had some stupid excuse. <laughs> he got bit by a dog on the way home from work or something. Probably, Yep. yep. <laughs> The task force continued to shrink due to budget cuts, but the detectives that they did have were excellent. They also got a state-of-the-art computer that helped them compile thousands and thousands of tips. It searched for connections among victims and suspects, which is so exciting. I love that. Yeah. Um, One of the detectives, Matt Haney, noted that the computer hits for suspect number two were really piling up. And this included... Police had listed the street name of a woman they saw in his truck in 1982, which was Kelly K. McGinnis, one of the missing victims previously mentioned. He was the man that strangled Penny Bristow. He had been stopped and questioned on the strip where most of the dead and missing women were last seen. Detectives went to his house looking for Marie Melvar as her boyfriend recognized the truck in his driveway as the one Marie was last seen in. He always drove older pickup trucks, all of which matched descriptions given by witnesses or survivors. Still, he didn't, seem to, he didn't seem to fit the standard serial killer profile. He was happily married with a son, and he had full-time employment. This man's name was Gary Leon Ridgway. Oh, I just got killed. I know. It, it stopped coming, and I was like, panic. <laughs> Finally. Finally. He was 37 years old at the time, just a few months older than Detective Dave Reichert. With so many computer hits, they couldn't ignore him. Though it was all circumstantial, they had no physical evidence on the guy. He could have just been a creepy dude who happened to be single from 1982 to 1984. 
but he wasn't just a dude. <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. Anne Rule had made notes on Ridgeway as well. He had turned his name into detectives in early 1987, as requested by his neighbors, and she even played detective and drove past his house to look for anything suspicious. Super interesting. <laughs> Man, she's ballsy. I love it. Right? <laughs> I think when she was describing her driving like by the house, she like put on a disguise and like wore a scarf and all the things, and I thought it was so adorable. <laughs> <laughs> I would do the same thing, though. April 8th, 1987, Gary Ridgway was shocked by search warrants as he had no idea that he was being surveilled. As the search was being done, he was taken into police headquarters and he was photographed and DNA samples were taken via hair follicles as well as mouth and cheek swabs. Was it um, them collecting the DNA? It was before DNA was a big thing yet, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, 1987. Yeah. It wasn't um, nearly as advanced right. as, as right. it was years down the road, but they still collected evidence, which was fantastic. Yes. White coveralls were bagged and tagged from his work locker at Kentworth by Detective Sue Peters, which was the same officer from the third body site. Officers also took ropes, tarps, paint samples, and carpet threads and fibers as evidence as well. Ridgway was proud of his job there. He was dependable and punctual. He did, however, struggle at times with dyslexia and would mix up specific paint combinations and jobs. This earned him the nickname Wrong Way, which he hated. After investigators had searched his locker, co-workers started joking that his initials, GR, were for Green River. His nickname soon became Green River Gary. Hilarious, <laughs> but yeah. also very eerie. How did they feel when he actually turned out to be the Green River Killer? They were like, shit, this mofo could have killed my ass. <laughs> <laughs> Just like that? Just like that. <laughs> I wrote that line when I was very sleep-deprived, and I was like, ugh, why did I write that? <laughs> I love it. I'm glad you left it in. Makes me happy. <laughs> I'm such an idiot. That's a good idea. I'm going to have a drink, too. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, another big change happened in the Green River Task Force. Commander Jim Pompey tragically died in a scuba diving accident. Bobby Evans took his place in December of 1987. The high-stress jobs of homicide detectives result in an increased rate of sudden death versus most jobs, and that seemed especially true with this incredibly difficult and long investigation. Just to make things worse, there now also seem to be serial killers in both Portland, Oregon, and Vancouver, British Columbia. What the hell, West Coast? <laughs> what is going on over there? <laughs> and the victim MO for these murders were all very similar to the GRK. They were all mostly sex workers and pretty much the same, in the same situations. So it was crazy. Oh, how overwhelming for investigators. They're like, is it just one guy that's doing all yeah, of these? Like right? Because like, I think Vancouver is only like four hours north of like Seattle and then Portland's like nearby too. It's like, yeah. theoretically, it could be traveling. Potentially, yeah. But nope, there was three separate serial killers at the time. So that's great. <laughs> yeah. One of the killers was caught in 1987, and that was 33-year-old Dayton Leroy Rogers. Had you ever heard of this dude before reading the book? Because I don't think I had. I hadn't at all. Well, he was a sick fuck, honestly. <laughs> and I, I think I'm... I look into him, so... Well, I'll tell you a little bit about him, and, like, 
like just a morsel about him and it will be enough for you to be like, ew, oh my God, this guy's the worst. (laughs) And yeah, I'm definitely going to do a further deep dive into this case someday. Beautiful. He was an auto repairman uh, south of Portland and he was married with a toddler son. Sounds pretty familiar already, doesn't it? His victims were also sex workers and were found in forests, self-buried, and fairly close together, kind of like the cluster sites in the Green River case. One thing he did different, however, and I'm cringing even before I say it, is he would cut off the victim's feet, likely with a hacksaw, and likely while they were still alive. (sighs) He was known to sex workers as someone who had a foot fetish, enjoyed bondage, and liked to inflict pain but they had no idea to what extent he would take that. Ugh, that's awful. Ugh, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it, but it's so interesting. <laughs> I just had a random thought, and this oh, was no. totally a sidebar. Tell me. <laughs> think, is it possible for after he cut their feet off, if he, like, threw them in the ocean for them to wind up on the B.C. coast? I had this thought, too, and I forgot to right? put it in there. Yes, thank you. No problem. Because <laughs> that's one of the theories about the feet washing up on the shore of BC is that there's a serial killer out there doing it, and that's the theory that I want to believe. So there you but go. But I mean, lots of them were man feet that were in shoes that they found. Well, they you know what? <laughs> don't <laughs> don't yeah, crap my staff. I like, <laughs> I like this theory, and we're sticking with it. Hey, we haven't done a deep dive into him yet. Maybe he liked man feet as well. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> God. Uh, man, what a great quote. Maybe he liked man feet as well. <laughs> or he shirt material. Yep. <laughs> the Green River Task Force looked into the cases to see if this guy had moved to Oregon full time. Uh, they found that Rogers was certainly a serial killer, but he was not the Green River killer. In May 1988, another body was discovered on a development site in King County. Deborah Lorraine Estes had been missing for six years. Fortunately, though, with the discovery of her body came some physical evidence. White paint chips were found on the victim on the victim's faded clothing. The paint was analyzed, and it was determined to be expensive paint used only on commercial vehicles. So finally, we have some physical evidence, but what the public didn't know is that there had actually been more evidence than that. Uh, We find out that another blood group was found on Opal Mills. She was type A, and type O was found in her body. Hair, paint, and fibers were also found on some of the other victims as well, which was never brought up before. I think it's interesting that six years later, they're finding paint chips. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. We're very lucky that they were still there after all that time. (laughs) Yeah. But also, if they had found body earlier was there a chance that he could have been stopped earlier i don't know true um but yeah this was all a little bit confusing to me all the way along we were told that there was absolutely zero physical evidence but once we discovered the first physical evidence all of a sudden more just happened to show up it was kind of strange in the book it it is kind of yeah yeah i didn't i didn't quite follow it but maybe it's just because the book jumps around so much that i was missing details or something Maybe. So we mentioned many victims in the first episode, but that wasn't all of them. Andrea Childers, 19, went missing in April 1983 and was initially added to the Green River victim list, but was later removed as it was believed she had crossed the Canadian border. 
dental records determined that she had been hidden just off the Seattle Strip that entire time. There are a few more victims to discuss towards the end of the episode as well. Along with new physical evidence, they at least had consistency with circumstantial evidence as well, and many vehicle sightings pointed towards similar descriptions of pickup trucks and station wagons, and all Seattle area witnesses gave a description of a Caucasian man, blonde to light brown hair, between 5'8 and 5'11, early to mid-30s, usually dressed in plaid and a baseball cap, and usually had a mustache. So basically the most average Seattle man possible. Yep. Things, yep. <laughs> Things were starting to come together, but they still had not caught the killer. And that was the end of part two in the book. So any further thoughts, Michelle? Before you uh, I, just, move on? I just had one little thought before, or just one thing that I wanted to mention before we moved on. Um, we don't think, I don't think we've really talked about the details of the task force, like how they combed the areas, and they were getting so many bodies. They had it down to a fine science on like how to look for those areas when, when the body was found, and that's how they found like one tooth and whatnot, because they were just so good at canvassing those areas. That's a great point. But it's also interesting that especially his cluster sites, like, they wouldn't always find another body right away, mm -hmm. which is kind of frustrating. And I, I wondered when I was reading the book if maybe he was moving his bodies after, afterwards as well, because... Potentially, yeah. Because if they've been searching the areas, then... But yes, that's yeah. a, that was just my other, my little thought that I had while we were that's going through this. Yeah, that was a great thought. I haven't added anything about how they comb the area or anything, so that's a mm -hmm. good point to make. They were really diligent, and they, well, they did it so many times that... They really got it down to a science, I think. <laughs> they really did, yeah. All right. Part three starts in 2001, almost 20 years later after this all began. I remember 2001. Like, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. Yeah, it doesn't, lie. but it does at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I want to tell you how old I was because you'll be mad at me. So. <laughs> yeah, I... Friends off. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm not even going to say it. You don't even know. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. This is fine. <laughs> Old Green River Gary was feeling pretty good about himself at this time. He had a good life, a good marriage, a good job. He had fooled detectives years prior, and he could still revisit the body sites to relive his glory days, which is so creepy Gross. that he still continued to go by there. Gary and Judith bought a nice place, and their kids had moved out, so they were able to do whatever they wanted. He had no idea that Dave Reichert would soon become the King County Sheriff, and he would revive the hunt for the Green River Killer. November 30th. I know. Um, did Judith have kids of her own, or was it just Gary's kids? Yes. Uh, Judith had kids of her own with her previous husband. Right. Oh, that's yeah. right, because that's how they met. Yes. Yeah, with the yeah parents without... No. Partners with Partners with her parents. <laughs> yeah, so she had kids previously, and then um, Gary had his one child, um, Chad, I believe. So yes. they were all grown, and I believe Chad had gone, and he was in the Marines at this time. Right. November 30th, 2001, the moment we've all been waiting for. There was a message on Anne Rule's answering machine from Detective Dave Reichert. It said, we caught a man. We've arrested the Green River Killer. Yay, Dave. Yay, Dave. <laughs> the arrest wasn't the end of the story, though. It was just the beginning of another. Earlier in the month, 
Although the evidence was coming together nicely, they were not ready to arrest the GRK quite yet. Gary did get arrested though, but it was not by the Green River Task Force. Judith had gave him some extra money that day, a whole 30 bucks. And this was not a normal thing, so he was pretty excited about it, especially when he saw an attractive woman on the side of the pack highway. He flashed his fat stacks. (laughs) 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 They made an agreement. And then he was promptly arrested. That's right, it was an undercover deputy. She was in another unit and did not know there were such big plans for this guy. He was charged with loitering for prostitution and he was released, promising he would return for a future court appearance. Again, he wasn't worried about it. He knew he could convince Judith that it was all a big misunderstanding. Poor sweet Judith. I know. DNA testing had made enough advances that detectives agreed it was time to send the little physical evidence they had to the lab so it could be compared to Ridgeway's samples. This included DNA found on another victim, Carol Ann Christensen, um, and they received positive matches on semen and pubic hair. Carol Ann Christensen was the one that the body had been staged in the very strange manner. Right. Yes. Yeah. They were now working on building a circumstantial case to add to their physical evidence. Detectives started interviewing the ex-wives, most notably, I think, is when they asked Dana to point out Gary's favorite areas for outdoor sex, and she unknowingly pointed out most of the body cluster sites. Barf. Gross. Ew. (laughs) November 30th seemed like a normal day for Gary as he went to work. Detectives had already contacted the Kentworth supervisors to inform them there would be police presence, but no one was to be warned. Gary was a bit surprised when detectives were there to speak with him. But he didn't seem nervous. They were following up on Carol Christensen's case as her daughter wanted to know more about her mom. Well, at least that's what they were telling him. (laughs) He admitted that he knew Carol from the Barn Door Tavern. He was under the impression that they were looking for a witness in the case if they ever took somebody to trial. What an idiot. Moron. He was so confident with himself that he was like, oh, yes, I'm going to be a witness in this case. (laughs) The murderer is going to be the witness. (laughs) Great idea. (laughs) Sue Peters then asked if he ever had sexual contact with Carol, which he said no, which was the wrong answer because that's exactly what detectives wanted him to say because they knew he had left DNA inside of Carol. However, this was not the time to arrest Gary. So they left. He worked a 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. shift that day. Shortly after 3 p.m., he walked out into the parking lot and he was startled when detectives began approaching him and told him he was under arrest for murder. At the same moment Gary was being arrested, detectives were at Judith's front door. They wanted to tell her about Gary's arrest before reporters got to her. She didn't object to being interviewed. She thought it was about the misunderstanding from a few weeks ago. Poor Judith. I feel for her. She was nearly 60 years old, and she just wanted to take care of her husband in her home. I felt so bad for her when I was reading the part. The entire my time. Heart just, my heart just broke for her. I know. There wasn't like an ounce of, I don't know, any bad feelings towards her. She was just such a sweet, sweet lady. Yes. During the interview, she was asked about Gary's temper and any violence. She said he had never been mad, and he raised his voice to me one time. Just one time, apparently, in their whole relationship. She firmly told detectives, he's the best. 
She spoke about the past year being quite difficult for him as he lost his mother to cancer. Him and Judith were caring for her the entire time that she was sick. Ugh, poor Judith. When asked about the soliciting incident, she was certain that it was a misunderstanding because he was just so friendly. He probably just looked at somebody and smiled. No, honey. No, honey. No. They (laughs) They asked if she was familiar with the GRK case and if there was any information kept in the house about it. She said she was familiar and that she had been keeping articles about it in the bottom drawer, but Gary did not. However, she later admitted that Gary, too, did keep some articles for himself. About 45 minutes into the interview is when the phone started to ring off the hook and there were reporters at the door. They had to break the news that Gary had been under arrest and his DNA was found on three of the victims. She was in complete shock and denial. Gary was being held in an ultra-security cell and his mugshot was on every newspaper the following morning. Anne Rule didn't recognize the man in the paper, but her daughter did. She said, Mom, remember how I told you about the man who came to our book signings? The one who leaned against the wall and just watched you? The one who never said anything and never bought any books? It was him. Uh, <laughs> I was screaming while I was reading that. <laughs> yes. Uh, so creepy. Uh, can you imagine? Mm-mm. And he was cer- she confirmed he was certainly there for one of the talks when she said he could be in the same room. She remembers him distinctly being there for that talk. <laughs> so <laughs> investigators had a lot more work to do as there was technically only solid evidence for four of the victims. They had begun searching his home and previous residences looking for any type of evidence or mementos that he might have taken from victims. This was particularly difficult, however, because their house was packed full of stuff. He and his wife had been collecting things from garage sales for years. It was basically a hoarder's home. It was just at least clean. (laughs) But it was really finding a needle in a haystack kind of situation. December 5th, Ridgway was formally charged with four counts of aggravated murder in the deaths of Marcia Chapman, Opal Mills, Cynthia Hines, and Carol Ann Christensen. He pled not guilty. The white cover, (laughs) of course he did. (laughs) The white cover alls that were collected in evidence from his work locker uh, proved to be very valuable. The tiny spots of paint were identical to those found on Deborah Estes, Wendy Cofield, and Deborah Bonner. With that, he was charged with three more counts of aggravated murder. Also, since when is there paint on Wendy and Deborah? I don't know. Right? Because <laughs> they were the first two. And then with uh, Deborah, they said that was the first physical evidence. Uh, oh, yeah. Wendy, did they just take another look? through all the other women's clothing after they found the paint spots on Deborah's, maybe? I don't know. Maybe, because, like, evidence never goes away. Like, they just get yeah. bagged and stored, right? So if... Mm-hmm. So I would assume yes. that's what happened. Otherwise, it's kind of strange. Mm-hmm. Reporters attempted to track down where Ridgeway was being kept, but no one seemed to be able to figure it out. He wasn't being held in a jail, a hospital, or a prison. So where could he be? He was in the office complex with the Green River Task Force. He was in a cell 30 feet from the desk of the detectives who were working on his case. He was always smiling and greeting people and trying to make friendly conversation. And the detectives hated it. <laughs> they uh, had, yeah. They had to pretend to be nice and happy, but they were just disgusted by him. Oh, I would hate it so much. Yeah. In mid-June 2003, he began to participate in the questioning. 
and oh boy, once he started talking, he never shut up. He loved it, and he wanted to show that he was the expert in the art of murder. He also loved when detectives would take him on field trips. They would take him to revisit body sites, and although detectives hated how much he enjoyed it, it was really important to the investigation. <laughs> he talked a lot, and he would be rewarded with a nice dinner or extra food when he had provided particularly important information that day. He truly did not care about his victims. They were objects to him. Not only did he not know any of their names, not surprising, but he didn't even recognize any of the pictures. His memory wasn't bad. He just truly did not care. He also admitted that he would deliberately let some girls go, saying, you're too cute for a guy like me. But that was so the sex workers would say that he was a good guy, which we kind of talked about in the first episode, as it was mentioned in one of the letters. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about Gary describing his techniques for luring and killing. And let's be clear here, there will be pretty disturbing details. And I just want to give a fair warning about that. So of course, he would find a sex worker and asked if they wanted to date. He usually offered more money than what he had, but he knew he'd be getting it back. If a woman was worried he was a cop, he would offer a beer. They would often ask if he was the Green River Killer, and he would say, no, of course not. Do I look like the Green River Killer? And they would always say no. He would also have some of his son's toys in the vehicle to show the girls that he was a good guy, an ordinary Joe. If they went to his house, he would show them his son's room. He wanted them to think that he really cared by promising to be a returning customer, help them find a job, let him borrow his car, etc. But he didn't care. He just wanted them in his vehicle so he could kill them. Sometimes he would do the killings on the ground outdoors, in the back of his truck, or in his bedroom when he lived alone. If they did go to his home, he would make them pee first so they wouldn't wet his bed once they were dead. Although he did have a plastic sheet on his bed just in case. He found that he had the best advantage while they had sex from behind, and he would say, I hear someone, and they would lift their heads up to listen, and that is when he would choke them. Or, if they were by the airport, he would wait until a plane flew over top of them as the girls would look up at the planes. Gross. I hate it. Yep. He had no preference about race or body type, just whoever he could pick up. He chose to choke his victims because it was less messy and more personal and rewarding. Using ligature gave him more protection from getting bite marks or scratches on his arms. Every action he took was very calculated. So he did learn after some time of getting bit and scratched that uh, ligature was the best way to go about it. Yes. Yeah. Now, this part I found so interesting. Uh, Michelle and I couldn't help but talk about it when we were first reading the book, uh, even though we tried to save it all for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I am referring to is the other Gary, known as the old Gary. That's right. He claimed to have a second, stronger, and angrier personality. <laughs> Apparently, detectives had been talking to new Gary this whole time, who is more reasonable, pleasant, and cooperative. Old Gary, however, resents being controlled, and he did not want to talk about the murders. But he did, <laughs> and he was very sporadic and angry when he spoke about them. Some things he said as old Gary is that he killed a lot of them because he was angry with his ex-wife. Women had always had control of him and used him. He said that he would take mementos and he would leave them places, such as near an IHOP, airport, laundromat, or at Kentworth. Uh, I didn't see it here in the book, but I have heard that he would leave jewelry in the woman's bathroom at work in hopes that he would later see somebody wearing it around work. But 
That's what I heard. I don't know if that's actually true. Old Gary said, I'm the one with the devil in my head. And he often referred to new Gary as a wimp. So was this truly a dissociative identity disorder or was it an attempt to fool detectives? What are your thoughts, Michelle? <laughs> I have so many feels. <laughs> um, I think he's full of shit. Yeah, so did detectives. <laughs> So full of shit that he's like, I'm going to get off in an insanity plea right? because I have multiple personalities and I'm a yeah. piece of shit. So I might as well embrace the fact that I'm a piece of shit and start lying. Right. Exactly. I think he saw some TV shows or on the news of somebody else doing it. And he's like, oh yeah, I can outsmart police. I can, I can get away with this. Right. Cause he already had outsmarted the police for how many yeah. years? So yeah. He was so was confident about it. Right. He's like, well, yeah. sure they caught me, but they're not actually going to sentence me to death or anything like I can get away with right? this yeah so detectives didn't believe the act either but it did result in productive interviews as they ended up finding out quite a bit of information from old Gary when the new Gary was back he decided to tell detectives about the time he picked up 17 year old Giselle Laverne and again this is all pretty disturbing he had a son with him when he picked her up Chad was about eight or nine years old that is so much older than I thought he was. Like, yeah. <laughs> I thought. He's not a toddler. No. When I, like, I knew this happened, but in my mind, Chad was like a baby or a toddler, and there was no way he would ever remember any of it. But he was eight or nine years old. Yeah, you're definitely going to remember that. Yeah. Ugh. Gary and the girl went out of sight for about five to ten minutes. When Gary came back, his son asked where the girl went. He said that she lived nearby. So she decided to walk home. <sighs> Bullshit. <laughs> you thought that was bad? Well, he also admitted to necrophilia. And he would return to the bodies for a few days until he couldn't anymore or until he found a new victim. He did this with his son sleeping in the vehicle. No words. Ew. I have no words. Ew. 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 Oh, I hope he's got a good therapist. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I his hope kid. So too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we don't give a fuck about him. <laughs> I don't give a crap about Gary. <laughs> My favorite part is his name is Gary, and I used to have an assistant coach that we didn't like. So whenever we wanted to talk about him when he was nearby, we would call him Gary. <laughs> that wasn't his name. <laughs> so we'd be like, "Oh, fucking Gary, get your shit together!" <laughs> and we, <laughs> you never knew that we were talking about him. <laughs> So I love that. Say Gary, I just have so much like disgust in my voice already from it. It's perfect. So it fitting. perfect. It is. Gary's just a piece of shit kind of name, I guess. <laughs> Sorry to any other Garys that are not. <laughs> I'm sure there's some nice Garys out yeah, there. Yeah, I'm sure there probably is. I take that. We back. don't discriminate against the Gary. <laughs> Only very select few Garys. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, really wish I had some fluffy stuff to talk about right now, but I actually do have some fluffy stuff to talk about. So, part of the investigation includes uh, Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole from the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, and she was to interview him about his childhood and how it made such a devastating impact on him, and I believe it was part of some type of study. She told Ridgway that she may not use him, as not all serial killers are equally as interesting. Well, Gary wanted nothing more to be interesting. So, you're probably thinking, where's the fluffy stuff? This is just another random interview, but I have a story about it. <laughs> so, in 
I had actually watched one of her interviews with Bridgeway a few weeks ago, and it was all about strategies she used to get him talking. And well, I decided to do a social experiment, and I took these strategies to the field. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. I'm such a weirdo. (laughs) I used the same interview techniques on some poor dude in a Montana bar. And it was for research. (laughs) Uh, This poor, poor man. (laughs) So the goal with with these strategies is to get the person talking. And this dude wanted nothing to do with me. (laughs) He wouldn't tell me anything about himself, but he just kept hanging around. So he became a target. And I was like, you know what? (laughs) You're going to sit at my table. (laughs) You're going to talk to me. Freaking love this. Oh my God, you're my favorite. Poor dude. Of course, he's very drunk. So anyways, when he first sat at our table, well, it was only me and one other guy. And the other person I was with, he's from Brazil and he was our DD. So he was kind of just sitting there, you know, not with all the crazy drunk people. Right. I talked to this guy, but they were not communicating well at all. (laughs) So then I was like, I'm just going to cut in here and, and distract this dude. So when I first started talking to him, I was directly across from him and I'm usually pretty aggressive when I talk to people. I do a lot of pointing and like, and things, you know, I'm pretty in your face. And he, he did not like that. He didn't want to talk to me. He was just kind of being a grump. So then I was like, okay, fair enough. It's not responding to how I'm speaking. So then I decided to try these techniques. So, um, in the interview with Ridgeway, the woman sits beside Ridgeway, not directly in in a confrontational way. She sat beside him and very close to him. And she would occasionally touch his arm or his elbow, make slight physical contact. And then, um, (laughs) and and would also ask, you know, open-ended questions and wait for them to fill the silence and that kind of stuff. So (laughs) I implemented these strategies with this random person. And he did tell me a little bit more information. He relaxed a lot. He opened up a bit. But then what I was not expecting is by the end of the night, he confessed his love for me. <laughs> <laughs> I made this man fall in love with me and I didn't mean to. I, I was oh, up front with him. <laughs> I told him, I told him many times that I was married. And honestly, I was just trying to have a normal conversation. And then all of a sudden he was in love with me. And then I was like, well, shit, <laughs> that's not what I was going for. <laughs> I mean, at least you targeted somebody who's just going to fall in love with you and not take you out somewhere and murder you. That's true. That was, that's a yeah, good thing. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. Maybe he would have. He was, he was a weird dude, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also, so when we were leaving out the door, I saw him crouch down, like, by, like, the jukebox. And then when I walked by, he, like, sprung up to, like, run after me. So then, so he might have been an absolute creep. Maybe he would have murdered you. I think he might have. Anyways. <laughs> I don't really have any, you know, big resolution after that story, but I just wanted to let everybody know that these techniques will not only get people to talk to you, they might even fall in love with you. <laughs> so use that All how right, you so wish. I'm just going to pay attention to make sure that Tara doesn't now have a stalker. Yeah. Cool. He doesn't remember my name. It's okay. <laughs> That's good. And he lives in a different country than me. It's all good. That's why I didn't. And our borders are closed. It's true. Borders are closed. We're safe. This is why I didn't do it, you know, in a hometown bar. I did it far away. So, yeah. yeah. that's good. Yep. 
<laughs> so I hope you enjoyed my experiment and made you forget about the disturbing things that we just talked about. <laughs> so anyways, <I> love it. <laughs> <laughs> the interview with O'Toole is where all the information about uh, Ridgeway's childhood came to light. And he also told her when his victims were discovered, he felt like his possessions were being taken away from him. Like, oh, they're not your scary. possessions. Fuck. <laughs> In another interview with the Green River Task Force detective, he spoke about Carol Ann Christensen. And we know from the day that he was arrested that he had known Carol. He said, the one I covered with a bag was special. She was nice to him, and he knew that she was excited about her new job and that she had a little girl. But he got angry with her one day, and he choked her. He said that he did not stage her body. He drank the wine, and he took the trout and the sausage from his house, and he put the meat on her body in hopes that it would attract animals, and he actually showed a bit of remorse when he described putting the grocery bag over her head, and he claimed to have even lied down next to her and cried. Don't know if that's true at all, but if it is true, then it is, it's a really different story than what we originally painted with the displaying of the body. Yeah. I don't know. It's... It's hard to know if he is telling the truth there. I mean, he did know this girl. It sounds like more than any of the other girls. So I guess there's a possibility that he might have showed some remorse, but who knows? Yeah, he probably still went back to her body and visited and did gross things. Yeah, there. so that's, I that's imagine true. probably not that much remorse. Yeah, no. He also said he wanted to help find the victims' bodies to give their family some closure. But it was 100% because he didn't want to get the death sentence. It had nothing to do with the victims' families. He's a coward. Yep. Four more victims who were not previously on the Green River list were discovered as a result of his field trips. Patricia Barsiak, 19, last seen on October 18, 1986. It was suspected that her boyfriend had killed her, but there was not enough evidence to prove it. Roberta Hayes, 21, was released by Portland Police in February 1987, but was never seen by her family again. They often said she traveled far from home. Marta Reeves, last contact she had was a phone call with her husband in March 1990. He wouldn't give her money for drugs, so she had to go make it on the streets. Patricia Yellowrobe, her death was ruled as accidental in August of 1998. The autopsy revealed no possible cause of death beyond the opiates and the ethanol found in her blood. Very interesting that that was in 1998. That was much later yeah. than the the other victims, so there may have been more victims that, yeah. that we don't know about. Since he was successful in leading investigators to the body sites, he had held up his end of the deal. He would not be facing the death penalty. As it was fast approaching, Gary claimed to prepare for his court appearances by reading Anne Rule's books. He studied mistakes that other defendants had made to ensure that he would not make the same mistakes. November 5th, 2003, Gary Ridgway pled guilty 48 times as the names of each victim was read aloud, including the four sets of remains that were not identified. Next, his sentencing was set for December 18, 2003. There were many familiar faces in the courtroom that day. The families of the victims, Green River Task Force detectives, past and present, and even Melvin Foster was in attendance. Oh, good old Melvin. Melvin's back. Uh, deputy prosecutors took turns reading. The defendant has pled guilty and agreed to a mandatory sentence of life in prison without possibility of early release or parole, which was repeated 48 times. Ugh. Ugh. 
when I had to read the list of victims myself, that was enough. But they read the list of each and every victim with the sentence as well. So (laughs) that would have been difficult. So much. Oh, man. Families finally had their turn to speak. They told Ridgway who his victims really were. They were family, they were loved, and they were missed. Many told him to burn in hell and called him many other names, but yet still kept composure and dignity. Many thanked the Green River Task Force for the hard work and dedication. Everyone had tears in their eyes, but Gary, he was completely emotionless. That is until he started feeling sorry for himself. Opal Mill's mother thanked him for no trial, and she forgave him. Linda Grewell's father also forgave him. And with this, Gary wiped the tears from his eyes. The tears weren't for the victims or the families. They were for himself. Gary read his statement to the courtroom. I'm sorry for killing all those young ladies. I have tried to remember as much as I could to help detectives find and recover the ladies. I'm sorry for the scare that I put in the community. I want to thank the police, prosecutors, my attorneys, and all the others that had the patience to work with me and help me remember all the terrible things I did and to be able to talk about them. I know how horrible my acts were. I have tried for a long time to get these things out of my mind. I've tried for a long time to keep from killing any more ladies. I'm sorry that I put my wife, my son, my brothers, and my family through this hell. I hope that they can find a way to forgive me. I am very sorry for the ladies that were not found. May they rest in peace. They need a better place than where I gave them. I'm sorry for killing these young ladies. They had their whole lives ahead of them. I'm sorry I caused so much pain to so many families. Gary L. Ridgway. <sighs> it's frustrating. <laughs> I hate it. I, it just makes me mad. It does. It makes me mad, too. And it kind of makes me mad that he keeps referring to them as ladies, but that's not how he sees them at all. Like, no. not that I want him to call them anything different, but no, he, he didn't see them. coached by a good lawyer. Yeah, it's, somebody else had written that for him clearly because he had no remorse at all no judge jones honored the memories of the victims as he asked for 48 seconds of silence in the courtroom so this bastard is still riding away in intensive management unit where he is kept in a single cell for 23 hours of each and every day gary ridgeway is now 71 years old So this monster is finally behind bars, and the families of the victims can finally have some type of closure after decades of pain and uncertainty. And that, my friends, is the case of the Green River Killer. Boom. (laughs) Yes. That's a lot. It is a lot. I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We've spent a long time working on this one. I've spent so much time working on this one. It's now almost April. And I've been working yeah. on it since December, though yeah. I'm a huge procrastinator. So I could have done that in a significant, significantly less amount of time, but <laughs> here we are. <laughs> but, but I think, I don't know, stretching out just helps because it's huge. Like, I, I don't think that you could have covered this in a month, right? Like, oh, yeah, it was, yeah. there's so much. And I'm honestly, I think I, I read the book probably three times. And I'm mm-hmm. glad that I did because each time I like, first time I, you know, I, I listened to it as an audiobook, and it was really good, but I missed so much detail. Like, it's not even funny. Second time I read it, I was like, man, there's so much detail in here that I missed. And then today yeah, yeah. I'm going through it and I'm just like screaming because I'm like, this is incredible. And I'm like, how I did I not 
notice all this stuff before. I've read it two times already. So it's just like every time I read it, I just noticed more and more things. I bet if I read it again, there would probably be more. Maybe something more. else. Yeah. Totally. So yeah. Yeah. It was, it was good. I'm glad I went through it yeah. in so much detail. Yes, me too. I still hate that he didn't get the death penalty, but I understand yeah. why he didn't. Yeah. It's, and I guess, I mean, there is worse things than death, and I say it often. So yes, being stuck true. in a tiny cell by yourself, yep, rotting. 23 hours a day. It's pretty bad. Yep, it's pretty bad. And the other inmates hate him. Like, he can't mm-hmm. be around anybody else because they would probably kill him. So it's not like he gets to be all friendly and buddy-buddy with um, people like he liked to be, like at Kentworth yeah. or at uh, when he was held in the the Green River Task Force office. He was always trying to be friendly and chat with people. He doesn't get to do that. So no. So that's, that's good. I don't mind that he's rotting away. And no, it's nice to have closure for all those other victims because he probably would have been only convicted of probably seven murders, I think. But with his cooperation, he was convicted of 49, 48, 48, 48 48, murders. So at least that's a really good thing that more people can have closure. It's true. Yeah. He still sucks, though. He does suck. <laughs> um, a lot. <laughs> yeah. I have some questions, unless you have anything else to add before we deep dive into the Green River case a little bit more. No, you go, go nuts. Okay. I was wondering, if you could hear the story from another person's perspective, whose would you choose? Oh, probably Dave Reichardt's. Yeah. He's pretty yeah. cool. Because he was, like, on it from the get-go. That's true. He was, was there it? from, like... Well, from, yeah, from the start. But didn't he... He wasn't one of the arresting officers, though, was he? He was with Judith, wasn't he? He... Ooh, who was with Judith? Sue Peters was who talked to him the morning of the arrest and then went to Judith. I can't remember if Dave Reichert was with her at that time. Oh, no. Okay. Sue Peters and Detective Haney were the ones that originally questioned him. Oh, right. Or was it Haney that was with Judith because Haney was the one who originally like put Gary in his sights he was the one who would let it go right yes you're right he was with Judith and Sue Peters and him were with Judith at the time and then Randy Mullinax and Jim Doyen were the ones that actually arrested him in the parking lot of Kentworth and then I believe uh, Detective Dave Dave Reichert was organizing more of the uh, press kind of stuff at the time oh right because he got a promotion yes he was the sheriff so he was dealing with all of that kind of stuff that's what i that's what i can see anyways from my quick quick glances so yeah so anyways yes that would have been a good perspective (laughs) yeah who would you want to see um well i don't really know but would think it would kind of be interesting from Judith's perspective even though she wasn't around for most of it and you wouldn't see most of the stuff but it would be an interesting perspective to have yeah absolutely and um they did say i think in the afterwards part of the book they said that judith was considering writing a book but then opal's parents went after her saying that they would sue her because um killers can't make money for their crimes and that kind of stuff and they were saying that it wouldn't be fair for her to make money off of their child's death and all that kind of stuff so judith didn't agree with them but as far as i know uh, she's not writing a book anymore, but anyways, it would be, it would be interesting. It would, it would be. It would be similar to uh, The Serial Killer's Daughter, which was the book yeah. from PK's um, daughter. 
she wrote that book. So it'd be, I think it'd be very similar to that. Yeah. I mean, I'd be say, interesting. yeah, I would say Gary Ridgway, but he's annoying and I don't want him to have that. No, I don't know. actually want to hear from him at all. Yeah. It's like, we heard enough about all the details. Like he told us pretty much everything in the interview. So I don't think there's anything yeah. else to really share. And he wouldn't even be able to articulate a good story anyways. So. No, because he couldn't remember names or faces or yeah, anything. Yeah, exactly. He's so just a piece of shit. Exactly. Um, did you do any deep dives into the case or into Gary Ridgway at all after reading the book? You watched not any much. Or anything? Not yeah. much. Um, I definitely went and looked at more pictures and stuff of him, and but watching videos and stuff with my kids is awkward because they just <laughs> pile into my lap, and I'm like, I can't let you watch this. So yeah, yeah fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Uh, I did watch, I did go through a little bit. I watched the interview video, like I said. That's on, that's on YouTube. It's pretty interesting. It's creepy to watch him talk to the lady, but it's interesting nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um, I read an interesting article. It was titled, Dave Reichert Did Not Catch the Green River Killer. And this guy that wrote the article, I think it's on thestranger.com, whatever that website is. But this guy did not like Dave Reichert. <laughs> He was not about it. He was basically saying that he had, he was just trying to be the face of the investigation. He didn't actually do anything. He just wanted all the attention and he didn't solve the crimes. It was DNA testing that solved the crimes and it wasn't his idea. Oh, I know. (laughs) It wasn't his idea to, uh, to run the samples and why didn't he run the samples when they first got the samples and he just went off and he also was mad that he, paid so close attention to Melvin Foster. And it was like, I don't know. This dude just, he was going on a rant. And I thought it was oh, a wow. funny you, uh, article. <laughs> there's always good things to find on the internet, right? Yeah. It was like, I just searched Dave Reichert and Green River. And it was one of the first ones that popped up. And I'm like, what is this? So anyways, that was interesting. Don't agree with it, but it was entertaining. Nope. We like Dave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I read a little bit about his son. He kind of gave an interview after his father was arrested in 2001. In his mind, Gary was a great father, always there for soccer games and never thought anything was weird. He doesn't remember any weird women. So according to him, he doesn't remember any of the instances with him and his father with women, but maybe. Thank God for that. Thank God, or yeah, he's just suppressing that. Memory. Yeah, never get hypnotized, okay? <laughs> yeah, things will come to the light. That shit will all come out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, I saw that the ID channel just came out with, I think it's a documentary, and it's called The Green River Killer, Mind of a Monster. I saw it, I believe I saw it on the Minds of Madness Facebook group, one of the podcasts that I listened to. Somebody had linked it there, so then... Yeah, I screenshotted it so I could watch it later, but I haven't watched it quite yet, but I probably will. So what would you, do you have a rating for this book? Uh, Yeah, probably. (laughs) Like a four out of five, probably. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say eight out of ten. I don't know. (laughs) We don't have an actual rating system, but I think it was a very good book. I think it's Yeah, it was well done. It was well done. Like a few discrepancies here and there, but yeah. Jesus, it's so big. So much information over decades. I would definitely say take your time with the book and don't try to rush through it. Because if you rush through it, you're going to miss so much detail and it's not going to seem yes. as good. But there's, it is such an incredible book if you actually 
slow down and pay attention and take your time with it. So if you haven't read it yet, you should do that. Yes. And when you read it, leave us some comments. Let us know what you thought. Yeah, absolutely. Post your questions, your thoughts. We'd love to know them. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So let's end this on a lighter note. It's time for today's question. Uh, and by the way, we need a name for this part of the podcast, but I haven't thought of that yet. <laughs> yes. Or suggest it, you know, <laughs> you whatever. You can give us suggestions for our question, our question time. <laughs> yeah. So we have both been in self-isolation for a while now. So what is yeah. something that you have enjoyed about it? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. I've really enjoyed really reconnecting with my kids because like, oh. I don't have to fight with them in the morning because there's usually a big old fight about how somebody doesn't want to go to day home and they don't want to get up and it's still dark out or whatever. And this way we, we kind of have a little schedule that we have now, but it's nothing like mm-hmm. – crazy we get up in the morning we eat breakfast and then I feed them 10,000 times <laughs> throughout the day <laughs> yeah uh. Uh, but I'm getting to learn phonics with Sarah which is really fun and Aww. yeah I'm nice. getting to watch them interact a lot and you know they're kind of at that age where they love to play with each other but they also hate each other at the same time so right. lots of <laughs> hugs and then screaming and it's kind of it's just interesting and fun oh I bet yeah oh that's sweet yeah what about you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I asked the question, but I don't know. Um, lots of uh, things. Your TikTok video with the toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> yes. During this time, I have started making TikTok videos. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed to admit that, but I have. And it's been pretty fun. It started because my soccer team started um, juggling toilet paper. And then so I had to make a video and then I went from there. So I've been having a very good time with TikTok. It's been very time consuming and stupid, but it's very entertaining and it's, it's brought me a lot of joy. So if you want, you can follow me. It's at, this is terrible. T E R R A B L E underscore on TikTok. <laughs> you don't have to, I love it. but it's also kind of like, I put, I put the name of our podcast on our, on my page. So then, you know, I may, yeah. might make references to murdery things sometimes. We'll see. Uh, so that's been fun. I don't know. I just, I've enjoyed it. Um, I really, I'm totally fine with being absolutely isolated by myself for long periods of time. So it's been quite normal for me. Lots of people are asking me how I'm doing and it's totally normal to me. It's been pretty great. And I always think about how every week of my life is always like, okay, next week I'm going to catch up on things next week. I'm going to get my shit together, that kind of stuff. And it was kind of funny, like, Oh, it happened. Like I actually had the time to get a whole bunch of stuff done. And that was very rewarding. I could have definitely done more if I didn't have TikTok, but I still accomplished a lot. (laughs) And I was pretty happy about that. That's excellent. Yeah, I don't, I really don't mind being at home. I'm an introvert by trade. Yeah. So it's like, I'm in an introvert's paradise right now. So yeah, exactly. (laughs) So yeah, all good things. But I, I get to go back to work tomorrow, which is pretty, it's also very exciting. So I'm sure they, they miss you. I'm sure they miss both of us. So I, I miss them a lot. <laughs> yeah. And it's going to be weird when it's you get back. It's going to so. be so strange, but we will, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Anyway, make sure to answer our question. So what's something you've enjoyed about social distancing, self-isolation, whatever it is you may be doing to keep our COVID-19 risk low. Mm-hmm. Um, and thank you for doing that because I don't want to be in isolation forever as much as I like it. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and obviously let us know what you thought about the episode or any thoughts, questions, anything mm-hmm. like that. You can email us at murderandmerlot at gmail.com. 
Find us on Instagram at Murder and Merlot Podcast, Facebook at Murder and Merlot Podcast, and Twitter at Murder and Merlot One. And you can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. We would love if you subscribed. And if you don't, you're dead to me. <laughs> we announced our next book in the last episode, but in case you missed it, next up we're covering Chase Darkness with Me by Billy Jensen. So go check that book out if you haven't already. Seriously, go right now. It's a really good book. Go pick it up. Go read it. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I said I had a, <laughs> an outro, but <laughs> I didn't write it down. Excellent. I'm the worst, but I'll give you the premise of it. I thought about saying, see you next Thursday, but then I was like, that's a lot like, see you next Tuesday, and we know what that means. <laughs> but then I thought about, see you next Thursday, the word would be cunt. <laughs> and then I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> so then I was like, well, for now, we'll just stick with, see you next Thursday. <laughs> see you next Thursday.